And of course this leads to Tom Hanks once again pissing, but this time he's relieved oh because gosh. he does not have a urinary tract infection. Glorious urination. <laughs> and then of course he <laughs> he goes home to then uh, basically ravage his wife. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I do kind of like the, the, the great line later the, on of like, oh, was your missus pleased? Several times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, li- I I like that. Basically, he like when he w- like after this, we see him immediately back home, and I think this might be the first time that we're really meeting his wife properly. Or did we meet earlier? Her early, yeah. I think Bonnie um, Hunt. Yeah, um, played by Bonnie Hunt, of course. Wonderful in this role. She's not in for very much, um, uh, you know. But she, she, you know, she is kind of, you know, she's she does okay. In this, I mean, you know, she's only in a couple of scenes, but you know, we kind of do get the impression that she is very. Um, you know, like they are a loving couple um, when, you know, they're allowed to pee. Later on, of course, she would um, reunite with Tom Hanks in Toy Story 3. Um, she actually yeah. has spent a lot of the last, like, decade just doing stuff for Pixar. <laughs> so, right, yeah, and um, she was in Cars too, right? Yeah. Well, Cars 1 as well. <laughs> but She was in Cars? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Cars. Cars 2, Cars 3, Toy Story 4, um, you know, Monsters University, um... Yeah, she, you know, she, uh, the last kind of live action role that she had was like, uh, I don't know, like 2009. And then since then, she's mostly been doing uh, voiceover stuff. Um, but yeah, so obviously, you know, we will talk about her later. But yeah, she is ravaged by Tom Hanks. And uh, the next morning, uh, she makes some. Um, oh, what does she make? Oh, I'm sorry. There's one more. Uh, there's one thing. Oh, she makes cornbread. Uh, but it's so funny how uh, I thought it was like. When it implied that what what was going to happen when he came home, it, fine. They went to the bedroom, and then all of a sudden they cut to the outside nighttime, and it said, and, and it just heard like uh, her moaning away, and I and I thought that's a bit much. Did we really need that? But then the sun goes down, and the sun comes back up, and now you're hearing Tom Hanks moaning. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, she will bake some celebratory uh, cornbread, but it will not be delivered because uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, something that kind of is more common in the novel, as the novel goes on, there's more investigation of what happened with John Coffey, and obviously the investigation is done by Paul. Um, but it really is only this scene and a couple of like brief flashbacks while he's reading the report where mm. um, you know we kind of see more of this. Um and so obviously he calls in sick, which is, you know, people would understand because the previous day he was kicked uh, in his crotch. So, you know, take the day off. Um, and he says he'll be back in the next day, but he goes off to investigate the murder of the two girls. Um, and we get Gary Sinise, as I said, in the previous two appearances of Gary Sinise, in real life, a crazy right wing margahead. <laughs> so... Um, some people are heartbroken to find that out because they like Gary Sinise as an actor. Yeah. And yeah. I will say his performance here is, you know, it's okay. It's not really much of a role. He's just kind of, you know, he's Burt Hammersmith, the uh, the lawyer who defended John Coffey. And so, you know, there's a bit of discussion about, you know, like him, him basically, Paul basically saying he doesn't see any violence in John Coffey and him being like, well, he was caught with two dead bodies in his arms. So, you know. Mm. Open and shut case, basically. <laughs> um, don't investigate anymore. Um, and then, because I, I don't know, I, I find the whole thing about him talking about, you know, like uh, about dogs and stuff, and how you know, like 
you know, they don't seem violent until they finally bite someone. And then he calls his son over to demonstrate this. Yeah, um, yeah you know, it feels very much like, come here, my prop son. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like every yeah. time we have a visitor, it's like, oh, you got to show off your cool, weird scar. Oh, dad. Yeah, so it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it did fit. Like, I mean, I, the funny thing is, I think this is kind of this is kind of accurate to the novel. So, but in the novel, it feels less kind of like hammy for this guy to be like giving this kind of moral about, oh, you know, dogs are fine until they end up biting someone, and then like come over, my son, and show him the dog bite that you have when yeah. you lost your sight. In I think it's all it's weird too because um, the kid doesn't speak. It is very much just like yeah, you know, just stands wheeling over a mannequin basically. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know that's it, Gary Sinise. Uh, that's the end of him appearing with Tom Hanks and stuff. <laughs> so, I think it's just uh, in the biblical comparisons. I think he's just setting up. This is a Pontius Pilate character now because he was the guy like, okay, well he deserves a fair trial, and then the public went, no, all right, well, wash my hands of him, so he's gone. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I would say that's inaccurate in two ways. Now, first of all, Pontius Pilate is a judge, not a lawyer, and also <laughs> this is a common thing for lawyers to say in films and TV shows that everyone deserves a defense, even if they are like you know the worst murderer or whatever. Um, hmm. So that's a common thing. Um, so I don't know that he's washing his hands, but obviously at the same time, it doesn't feel like he gave him a great defense either. Like I think that's what we're meant to get. Right, from this, is yeah. like you know he felt that John Coffey was guilty, and he he didn't really bother to put up much of a fight to let him. You know he could he, like. You know, he could have possibly maybe not got him the death penalty, but instead, you know, that's how John Coffey ends up in, in Paul's sight. So, um, yeah, uh, we, we obviously we do get the funny line where, um, you know, John Coffey asks if if uh, the wife was pleased and, you know, the cornbread is the uh, reward. Um, and I like that, you know, John is like, give, like Dell's like, can I have some of that cornbread? <laughs> and John's like, yeah, give some to him. And then obviously, you know, he gives some to Mr. Jingles as well. And then when uh, Wild Bill is yelling for it, he's like, no, you, you're a bad man. You nope. can't have any cornbread. Nope. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that is kind of my like one of my favorite moments from, uh, you know, Michael Clark Duncan just playing the kind of like pettiness of like no you don't you don't get the cornbread <laughs> yeah yeah I wouldn't you give know. it to him either quite frankly <laughs> like well no not after what he did he kicked he kicked the boss in the in the crotch you like yeah. you can't you can't be doing that it's just so um, noisy as well you know you're sitting there trying to just like live out your last days in peace and quietness of some asshole roaring his head off twenty four seven down the hall yeah um. And then, of course, uh, this is where they decide to take some action against uh, Wild Bill because he decides to piss on Harry Twilliker. And I like Jeffrey DeMunn's reaction of, like, he pissed on me. Like, just, like, his complete... Like, like, you know, they've never... I guess they don't really have the prisoners that are here to kind of call, like, protest and attack them in any way. So I'm guessing this is literally, like, the first time that a prisoner has decided to do that to him. Um... And I like how, you know, they kind of, they empty the restraint room and I like how when the restraint room is being emptied, uh, you know, obviously Sam Rockwell just does not shut up. Like, well, Bill just keeps on talking, <laughs> and just keeps on going on and on and on and just will not shut up. And then when they open the cell and you've got Harry and um, Paul standing there, it's just a wonderful shot where they kind of, you know, um, not, no, it's Harry and Brutal, isn't it? And they, they, they go to, from, to, from side to side and they, and then they reveal that behind them is Harry. Yeah, with a hose, and he just goes, piss on me, would you? And then just unleashes the hose on him, and just basically, like, they hose him down so much that basically he kind of, like, floats out of his cell when they have, they finally restrain him. Um, and then, obviously, they put him in the restraint room, uh, and then, you know, he, he buys some chocolate from Toot Toot, and then he chews it up, and then, you know, punches his cheeks, 
and splashes it all over uh, Brutal. And then, of course, he's back in the restraint room. Like I love how it's as well. It's like an instant cut to like him just being dragged along the floor um, in the straight jacket. Like it's just such a wonderful. Here's what I was uh, wondering. Yeah. Two things I always wonder about that scene is one. How long did he have that moon pie in his mouth? Because it's like, mm. it could have been like an hour or something. He was waiting for Brutal to come over since he bought it. And has to sit there yeah. the whole time with the cheeks expanded, which is, you know, I mean, it's torturous. But I guess what he is crazy. And then two, it is also like, is it's supposed to be implied that he's just so crazy that he hasn't learned the like the lesson of, if you do this, you're going to go straight in the restraint room. Because every time he seems to be like, oh, no, I didn't realize that this was going to be the consequence of this thing. Is, it, is, it just, is he an idiot, or is it just that he's completely out of his mind? I, I mean, in the novel, it's kind of just implied that, um, you know, while he's there, he's just going to keep causing trouble, and he doesn't really care about the consequences, um, you know. And I think just his reaction to being restrained is just his natural reaction in that moment, and he, he doesn't really think it. He doesn't think that they're going to do that again for some reason. He just, it just doesn't occur to him. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he he then also, you know, once he's in his cell, he then starts to kind of destroy his cell a bit as well and turn his bed over and start ripping apart the pillows and stuff. And obviously they, they don't bother to try and fix all that. They just leave him to live in his own mess. Um, you know, they've kind of had enough of him. Um, <clears throat> and then we approach uh, the bad death of Edouard Delacroix. Mm. Um and they take what I like about this is I think this is also in the novel where they take him to give like a performance with Mr. Jingles to like a bunch of people, including like Bill Dodge and some other guys. And I like how Bill Dodge is like, you, you know, watch this. This is good. This, like this is really good. Like he's he's really into the whole kind of like circus mess thing. Um, there's not much of Brent Briscoe as Bill Dodge in this. I don't think we even get identified that he is Bill no. Dodge. Uh, but I think from reading the novel, you kind of know who he is. Um, but yeah, so I like that he's kind of like given a performance, and this is where we find out that Percy is going to be out front for, um, you know, for Dell uh, being executed. Um, and when you know Dell comes back, you know that because you know, they obviously rehearsed it a couple of times, but you know he comes back with Mister Jingles, and he's telling them how much you know they love the performance and everything. Um, and this is when, as they're kind of as he's going back in the cell, Bill grabs Percy, and he pisses himself. <laughs> Um, and then Dell uh, laughs and makes fun. Um, and they even actually have to, like, Paul, I think, has to tell Dell to shut up and stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously he's trying to deal with Percy in a compassionate way so that he isn't humiliated. Um, but, you know, unfortunately for Dell, um, you know, that is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's really much more emphasized in the book, too. Like, it is in the movie, but, like, the relationship between Dell and Percy has always been just constantly antagonistic and much more Percy victimizing Dell constantly, like every single opportunity he gets. So it's much more of a kind of small victory for Dell to finally be able to laugh at him after so yeah. so much torrential abuse from the guy, which is a little bit in the movie, but it's much more so in, in the, the written form. Yeah. And I mean, you know, earlier he like uh, banged his uh, nightstick on the on the on the the bars and broke like um, Dell's hand. <laughs> so, yeah, like yeah. you know, there's just little bits of that, but uh, yeah. Um, and then we get uh, the start of um, brutal and Paul. Um, I guess in a way trying to calm Dell about you know what's going to happen with Mister Jingles, and they talk about like how there's like a you know like a place in Florida called Mouseville where they have performing mice and that's where he's going to go 
um, you know, and they kind of reassure him. But I, you know, this is obviously again, this is one of the things that kind of shows how Paul and Brutal handle the prisoners, and you know, the way that that like, there's no point in kind of like making. I mean, you know, we 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 kind of get the idea that maybe Dell doesn't really think this is a hundred percent real, but at the same time, they're reassuring him. Um, and even when he kind of tries to question it a little bit, they're like, no, no, it's definitely, you know, like we'll we'll take a trip down to Florida with Mr. Jingles, and you know, like they're 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 basically trying to kind of. Um, you know, make it clear to him that, you know, Mr. Jingles won't come to any harm and obviously, you know, calm him down that way. And, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's a nice moment, particularly the way they kind of both start improvising and adding to it and kind of expanding on exactly what this is. And, you know, they give the prices for how much it is for adults and child. And like, you know, it's just, it's just a wonderful moment between particularly those three actors, you know, like, um, as we said, Michael Jeter is kind of amazing in this and like the way he is as Dell you know, talking to the two of them and, you know, the kind of conversation they have about Mouseville, you know, it's just one of my favourite things that they do in the film where, you know, it shows the compassion that those two have, you know. Um, we'll obviously see the compassion from some of the other guards for something else later on, but in this particular moment, like, the fact that they care that much to kind of, you know, talk about um, what's going to happen to Mr Jingles, um, you know, that's obviously, you know, it's a nice moment. The thing, everything about the the whole Mouseville scenario is just that it's it's expertly building up something that is because you know the devastation that's going to come within the next like 10 minutes of the movie and it's just like it's really really setting up so many layers of like how do we make this thing that's already going to be bad so much more you know horrible to endure so setting up this idea of like oh Mouseville what a lovely concept and isn't it nice that they've comforted him and like you know it's, it's we're trying to make this as pleasant as possible for everyone all around just to be like nope <laughs> you're gonna get that ripped right away from you yeah. Um, and of course, this is where Percy succeeds in stamping on Mr. Jingles because Mr. Jingles is following a, um, like a, uh, what's a it, spool. Like a thing in the middle of a needle, uh, the thread? A, a spool, yeah. that's it. That's the word I was looking for. Um, yeah, he's following the spool, and obviously, this is where Percy strikes and he stomps on Mr. Jingles, crushes him, and then walks off the mile triumphant in the fact that he has killed this mouse. And of course, this is where John Coffey just sticks his hands out of the cell and says, Give him to me. And uh, I I just love it. I mean, like, just the the like the way that Michael um, Michael Clark Duncan just like kind of handles this whole thing is just so great. The way that they just kind of like put him into his hands, and obviously this is like it has to take place in front of all the guards right. apart from Percy, <laughs> so that we can we can understand the setup for later on and how they kind of believe in something. Um, and also, it gives us a little bit of gloating as well that Paul and Brutal are able to do as well. <laughs> mm. um, you know, as John Coffey obviously brings, um, you know, brings this mouse back to life, and then you know spits out and flies again. Um, and uh, you know, what I like as well is how like Dean and you know Harry and Brutal all kind of like mystified as to what's going on, and they're not quite sure what they're witnessing. And then obviously, Mister Jingles runs off back to Dell. Um, and what I what I like about this is they you know they obviously Paul and Brutal then go and say to Percy that you know Mr Jingles is alive and and they kind of gloat a little and I love that because when he goes out to check he's like no it's a different mouse and I love when um, David Morse is like yeah I always keep a spare mouse in my wallet for occasions <laughs> like this and it's, and it's like yeah like there's only one mouse that's going around chasing spools and it's Mr Jingles and there's no other mice on the mile so mm. um but it's yeah the, the exasperation also... too of Paul like you know you're no better at killing mice than you are at well anything else around here <laughs> you know it's just really had his wits yeah. ends with this guy and now he has an excuse to vent on him as well 
Well, yeah, because this is the point where obviously Paul and Brutal, you know, they they I mean, I guess I guess they threaten him, um, you know, and they basically make him promise that after he has done um, Dell's execution, that, you know, they they will that he will transfer out. Um, and, you know, he kind of promises to do that and they shake on it. Um, you know, I think in the novel, this is where Stephen King is like, yeah, but that never got to happen. And, you know, like, <laughs> kind of, he kind of has a bit of a wink at the, 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 you know, that deal will never actually be held up. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it kind of will. Um, and, you know, we finally get to, 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 you know, Adele's execution date. And, you know, he's worried about what's going to happen with uh, Mr. Jingles. Now, once, you know, alive after being killed. Um, and John obviously offers to take him. And Dell, you know, trusts John uh, with Mr. Jingles. And, you know, it's a nice moment where, you know, obviously, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, like he, he, he gets the, the kind of the reassurance that, that Mr. Jingles would be okay. I do like that he kind of puts him on Paul's shoulder and Paul's like, I can't do an execution with a mouse on my shoulder. It is a bit of a nice little like bit of levity within the kind of seriousness of the situation. Just that little shot of yeah. him standing, just like you know, you can almost tell like I, I kind of want to do it, but like you know, I can't. So uh, you're gonna have to find another way, man. Yeah, uh, and you know, this is where uh, things go wrong. Um, <laughs> there's no other way to say it. Uh, you know the, the the kind of I think it was part four was called the bad death of Edward Delacroix. Like it was literally made clear that this is going to be a bad execution. Yeah, you know, I think they built up to had... it like the whole book, like in the first chapter, oh, they're saying like, "Oh, what happened to yeah. Del? Oh my God!" <laughs> like they're constantly re- like, con- like reminding you at every given moment, like what's com- what's coming for him is not going to be pleasant. Yeah. Uh, yeah within within the novel there are many like each practically every single chapter before this that came out it was like oh but it isn't as bad as what happened to Dell like it they constantly he constantly hinted at whatever it was <laughs> um and so we kind of finally arrive at that point where Percy being a vindictive person first of all he tells him that Mouseville isn't real <laughs> like right in while he's in the chair and obviously there's nothing that you know um, Dell can do about that now because he's strapped in and then at, because we've seen the procedure a couple of times with rehearsals and then obviously we saw the death with the chief we know and everybody in the audience knows that that sponge needs to be wet mm. and it is not wet Percy goes to put it in the bucket takes it out dry puts it on his head and then straps him in and they put the hood on yeah um, and I think it's, then, it's, all, it's the it's fantastically well built up though I think that's what the, it's oh, not yeah. so much the the intensity of the actual execution is like how devastating the little the little blows are along the way there of just seeing Dell getting walked away. And then when he sees Percy's the guy up front, yeah. he has a kind of moment of recoil and they have to go like, no, no, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then when they finally yeah. kind of got him called, you know, calm down and he's reciting, you know, things to himself, to then have Percy be like, that was never, Masville was never real. It's just like the worst thing. Like you as the audience feel the gut punch as well. Like, why did you have to say that to him? And also, why are you such an asshole, Percy? He also calls him a gay slur too, which is, uh, you know, it's just like, man. Yeah. Yeah. And this is yeah. like, right. So if that wasn't bad enough that you're getting killed by a guy who's done nothing but abuse yeah. you for as long as you've been there. And he's also told you that the one thing that you were keeping hope for is complete fabrication then it's going to get even worse than I think of in the ensuing execution. It's like, oh, my God, they really, really are laying it into you with this sequence. 
Yeah, I mean, they like obviously, you know, with it being uh, dry, there is no conductor. And so obviously all it is is basically just electricity being sent straight into the sponge and then the sponge setting on fire and that sets his head on fire. And, you know, obviously he's screaming in pain. And what what's funny is like, obviously, like as a viewer, we've seen a successful execution. Um, and hopefully we've also thought that, um, you know, uh, Capital punishment is literally the stupidest thing in the entire world. So, mm. um, but now we're seeing an unsuccessful one, and I'm sure as a viewer, you're also like, "Why do we? Why do we do this to people?" You know. Um, but what's funny is like, as an as an audience member, you you could look away. But what's funny is that's exactly what Percy does. <laughs> he looks away, and then Tom Hanks obviously turns him around and says, "No, you look at what you've done." Yeah, and watch I you think also he might be saying that to the audience. <laughs> Yeah, he might be saying that to the audience as well of like, no, you can't look at, like, this is obviously going wrong, but this is, you know, this is it. This is like, we're murdering Dell in front of you, a character that you've grown to love mm. over the last kind of like hour, and you're going to have to watch it. Like, you know, it's almost like Stephen King and Frank Darabont are like, yeah, watch this guy's head set on fire with blue flames coming out yeah. as he screams at his lungs. Literally set the, um, based on a real botched ex- execution too from uh, Jesse Tafaro. I think he executed okay. in the early 90s, similar situation with the sponge and like yes yeah, like apparently six inches of flame erupted from his head and stuff and it's like you just see stephen king like well saving that one for later <laughs> obviously when i read that in the <laughs> yeah. papers but uh yeah and obviously the warden comes down and you know he says to him turn it off and of course you know paul makes the point we can't he's alive like yeah you've just got, you, like this might be terrible but you've just got to let him like you've got to let it kill him basically you know i don't no always remember thinking stop. and I don't know if you guys ever picked up on it. I thought there was a, again, they gave you a little glimmer of hope in the scene that turned out to be nothing because there's a shot of them getting prepared and you see Paul like holstering his pistol. And I thought like when I first saw it, I thought like he's going to take out that gun and shoot him just to get it over with even faster. And then it's like never touched upon. It's just like, nope, you have to go through this horrible process. There's no shortcuts. I think, yeah, there's, you have to sit through the whole thing. There's also a shot of Paul, like, I think he's like noticing that there's no water drips as he, as he moved the sponge to, to Dell, but he doesn't say anything. He's just kind of looking at it like, that's weird, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think here's the irony, Nile. I think if he had taken out his gun and shot him, he would have been charged with murder because, because <laughs> even though it's even though it's a state execution, the state can kill him, but nobody in that room could. Like, so if any of the witnesses like pulled out a gun or something and tried to kill him while while he was being electrocuted, they would have to be charged with murder as well. Yeah. Um, it's like we've so already got the probably... chair warmed up, Paul. You can just hop on in there if you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and. You know, obviously, it, like, you know, a lot of the witnesses start kind of throwing up and <laughs> trying to get out of the room. And I like how the warden's like, everything's under control. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I think in the novel, there's also some questions where people are like, is this how it's meant to happen? You know, and, and like kind of the, you know, discussion of the smell and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, which is... Of course, is, to kind Stephen of... King being Stephen King, because it's pretty brutal in the movie, but... Of course, yeah. you know, he's a guy, like, he loves getting into the gory details of things. So it's actually all descriptions of, like, Dell's eyeballs melting and the hood actually burns away so people can see his face mm. while it's happening. Yeah. And it's just like, let's make it even worse <laughs> than <laughs> it actually needs to be. Uh, yeah. And, of course, while this is going on, uh, John Coffey is also yelling out. Uh, Bill, Bill um, while Bill is also screaming at the top of his lungs and 
screaming about you know uh, someone's frying tonight and all this kind of stuff. But obviously, John is feeling the you know he's feeling the pain that Dell is feeling. Um, so you know he's in some way he's connected to Dell, and and that is what's going on. And you know, um, I I think obviously because he was there after the chief, wasn't he? So he wouldn't have been there. But if he'd have been there when the chief was there, he probably would have felt that as well. Um, but yeah, um, and then we, you know, we obviously from, you know, that obviously awful incident <laughs> and how terrible it was, you know, there's some repercussions in that they're kind of like, you know, uh, they're kind of talking about how they're going to, um, you know, reprimand him. And he just keeps saying, I, I didn't know the sponge was meant to be wet. Um, yeah. and, you do have the you know, James Cromwell delivering a fantastic line of what in the blue fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's funny as well because Paul is like, you know, he goes successful execution. Um, you know, he's like, he was meant to be murdered and, you know, meant to be executed and we executed him. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah, right. yeah. That's the end result. It was a painful death, but, you know, we managed to get it done. Um, so, yeah, and then we have, uh, you know, Paul and Jan. They visit uh, the warden uh, and his wife. Um, and that then leads to Paul and Jan coming up with a plan um you know with the other guys uh you know they 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 kind of they talk about it and they're like well you know uh, they've kind of got nothing to lose they're like all our kids are grown up apart from dean stanton who's got like a kid and a kid on the way so they're like you know you stay back in the the green mile and you watch everything um but we will take you know uh, john coffee to melinda um uh, in in a part in one of the in the novel that was called night journey um which <laughs> Out of all the titles for the novels, I always felt that was the lamest because it's like, you know, come up with something else. You know? <laughs> uh, like the glorious, you know, the glorious saving of Melinda Moores or something like, you know, yeah. better than just Night Journey. Yeah, um, sounds like a, like, a, like a new wave album from the 80s or something. <laughs> just like Night Journey. I mean, it, sound, it sounds like a cover band who do Journey songs and, I don't know, maybe some other band from the 80s. You yeah, know, like, they uh, only play at night. It's like, do you want to do this daytime night festival? Wish. No. Yeah. <laughs> we <can't>. <laughs> <laughs> We're Night Journey. We only play after 9 p.m. Um yeah, so, uh, yeah, the plan is hatched, um, and oh, uh, what I like here is that, like, you, oh, well, that, go for it. The, go this for is, like, my favorite uh, Bonnie Hunt moment, actually, in this movie, where they're explaining what happened with oh, Paul, yeah. and she she says to the she says to the guys, like, she's not going to get into detail. She just goes, he came home, and he was all better, and then she kind of gives <laughs> Paul a little look. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but but also obviously these are the guys who have seen um, Mr. Jingles get healed, right. you know, and obviously Paul has said I've been healed, so like, they they're all on board because they they understand it to be true, um, and in the novel there's a lot of like planning about how this is going to go down, and in the film they kind of do it very they very it's very kind of quick. I mean I say that there's still like an hour left of the film, but it it's very quick in terms of how they get into the plan. And they don't really bother to kind of explain it on screen that much. They just kind of say, you know, uh, Dean will stay behind and the rest of us will take John Coffey. And like, that's pretty much it. But obviously they have two problems they've got to overcome. First of all is Wild Bill. And second of all is Percy. And so <laughs> I, I, what I like is how, you know, again, some wonderful visual storytelling here from Frank Darabont. He doesn't bother to explain it in, you know, we just see them preparing the drugs and then getting it into like the packet. And then obviously they bring out like these beers and they kind of taunt Wild Bill basically. Yeah. And 
It's also kind of going back to the again the cornbread thing. Well, it's like, well, you know, if he sees oh, a yeah. thing that someone else has, because he's like a child, basically, yeah. <laughs> he'll just insist yeah. that he has to have it as well. Also, what am I? Yeah, so I like one of the best, like, uh, sa- one of the best Sam Rockwell lines in the movie, where you're like, why? What makes you think you deserve some? And he just kind of like mutters to himself, "Cause I got a big pecker." <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah sam rockwell sam rockwell of course uh wonderful and you know they they put the drug into the into the cup and they give him the cup and he drinks it down very fast um and they're not the funny thing is when they're preparing it you know he paul says to brutal is this enough and brutal's like i don't know <laughs> so they're just kind of guessing at how much to drug this guy um, you know, because obviously, you know, I would expect that they would have like a, you know, a pharmacy in the prison that would be, you know, would have these drugs. So obviously they've just taken them from there. Um, and then once they have um, knocked out Wild Bill, uh, who, who again, like he kind of fights against the, the drug. So he's trying not to kind of, you know, fall asleep and he just kind of ends up falling asleep uh, and kind of flopping onto his bed. Um, they decide that they are going to teach Percy a lesson and they're going to restrain him and they're going to put him into the restraint room and there's not really anything that Percy can do. And of course they give the excuse that, you know, what he did to Dell is the reason why they're going to do this. Um, you know, and I kind of like how he struggles against it and they're like, you know, there's no point. Like there's like four of them. <laughs> they're yeah. going to do this, you know. Um, and it is very satisfying to see Percy getting put into the uh the the straight jacket and then pulled along into the restraint room and then i like how he's percy's saying like you can't do this and paul is like we can and we are <laughs> and then he just puts like the kind of the gauze into his mouth and then puts like the tape over it and he's and then they they're like you know enjoy your time in the room like i just love how he instantly answers him with like yeah you know like you're in a straight jacket yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. obviously doing this you know <laughs> there's no there's no way that this is not happening now. It's it's already in process. Uh, and this is when we get, um, you know, Bill, for, I'm guessing because he was drugged quite a while earlier, he kind of has managed to wake up. And as they're walking with John, uh, he grabs John, and obviously John sees something. In the novel, I think it's explained what he's seeing, but obviously we will, we will not mm-hmm. get that until later on. Um, and then, uh, you know, as as he's doing that, he then kind of, finally gets taken over by the drugs and he falls asleep um and they manage to get um john out they stick him on the back of their truck because he's gigantic and you know um there's no other way for them to transport him um you know they all say they're going to take shotguns you know just in case he tries anything but you know paul is very confident that john coffee is not gonna you know try anything you know when they ask him does he know where they're going you know he says to help a woman um you know that's all he knows Mm. He's also extremely taken with the night sky. Yeah. Um, and also freshly cut grass. He just kind of picks it up in his hands and he offers it to the guys to smell. <laughs> and Paul kind of smells it. And then the others are like, okay, I guess, you know, let's go. <laughs> um, it was like during... You know, but was, I like I like that kind of... It was during this moment where like... No, go for where, it. Uh, uh, I was thinking... For, for some strange reason, it was at this moment where I was thinking, where does this guy even come from? Who... Like, did he have a family? Did he, did, did he just kind of, was he just found in the field of these girls and nobody knew where, cause he's just acting and like he, he knows the stars. He, he loves the grass and like, and just the emotions and it's just, uh, I, I wonder, I can't remember the book if the book even illustrates, uh, where John Coffey comes from. Did he have any sort of family? Was he being taken care of? 
I think they I think they make a point of like he is literally like he's like a man out of nowhere. Yeah. Like he's just, he appears like a miracle. Like it's just like who yeah, he's a mystery to everybody. Mm. They say that he he like when he's talking to Bert Hammersmith, he's like, "Is there any history of this guy?" Because he's like a seven foot black guy in the south. <laughs> like yeah. somebody must have seen him, and he's and he's like, "No, it's like he just fell out of the sky." Mm, yeah, um, and I think that's about as much explanation as Stephen King gives in the novel as well. This is kind of a rare thing because you would consider it to be some sort of like a you know Christ allegory or a, a second a second coming almost kind of. It thing. is a second coming. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like it's, you know. it's almost because you know, th- this version of Christ, like he, he's not out preaching to people. He's not out right. like, you know, gathering masses or anything. It almost seems like he doesn't he's not entirely fully aware of what he is himself. Like it's sort of an interesting route to take with the character. Like he does come out with some quite you know profound philosophical things later on. But it all seems like it's quite like he doesn't understand who he is or where he's from. And, you know, it's um, yeah. I will say I will say this. The choice for Stephen King to make this character black and in the South during this particular time period obviously has to be very specific. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the thing is, it is falling very deeply into a cliche that Tom Hanks himself has wandered into a couple of times with other characters in films, uh, in particular in Joe versus Volcano, where he is literally a magical Negro. He is yeah. the most magical of all magical yeah. Negroes. There's no I know Spike Lee isn't... had real beef for this movie like when it came out, and he yeah. was the one really putting over the coals for that. But, um... I mean, I, I, here's what I'll say. Obviously, it, it, it does kind of fall into that cliche. Uh, it, you know, it falls into that cliche in the novel even before it's, you know, in, in the film. But I, I, I think, personally, the performance of Michael Clark Duncan, which I think was not Oscar-nominated, if I remember correctly, um, it overcomes that. Whatever, like whatever the cliche is, like whatever this is, and you know, in that thing you do, Tom Hanks wrote himself a magical Negro into that film. <laughs> like there's a there's a hotel kind of like concierge guy who is literally again in like the sixties in the kind of in the in the, the south is like a magical Negro. So you know, it, like I mean, I think in terms of like that thing you do, it kind of works. And I think the thing that's the thing is true as well with. Uh, Joe versus the volcano, where it's Ossie Davis who obviously collaborated with Spike Lee a ton, um, and I don't catch Spike Lee complaining about Joe versus the volcano. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan was nominated uh, for an Oscar and a Golden Globe, but didn't win though. No, oh. unfortunately, which is you know tragic because you know it, it's a great performance, um, and I I think he manages to overcome the cliche. Like I think this film wouldn't be as good as it was if it wasn't for Michael Clark Duncan. Just like you know, uh, I mean. There's, you know, there's no point calling you like giving your character the initials JC if you're not literally saying he's Jesus Christ, right. <laughs> and you know that's obviously what he's doing. Um, but I, what I love, I mean, obviously the, the kind of the, the peak of the performance is when he does get to uh, the warden's house, and you know, obviously the warden comes out with the shotgun. Everyone's got shotguns, <laughs> and so um, you know, he he doesn't want any. Like it's two thirty in the morning, he doesn't know what what, what strangers are doing there. Um, you know, Harry being the incompetent boob that he is has left of the spotlight on, so he's shining <laughs> directly into the face of Hal. And so he turns it off, and then we see John Coffey just slowly walk up to the warden. And, you know, when he says he's like, he's, he's here to help, and he just kind of puts his hands on the shotgun and just kind of moves it, and then just kind of passes it to Paul, and Paul kind of passes it away. And then the, as the warden is like, you know, uh, he's basically like, you know, don't go in there, and and he just keeps walking. And he's like, you know, he's here to help, boss. And it's like, it's like he's drawn you know, to it. I don't know. It's just such a wonderful. 
Yeah, like you know, he he knows. He, like no one's really had to kind of explain what he's got to do. He just knows that there is a sickness and he's got to cure it. Mm. Um, and you know, he just kind of walks upstairs, and you know, he just kind of cures her uh, as he's done previously. Mm. Uh, but as he, but unlike previous times, he does not spit out any flies, and he keeps coughing. And in the in the novel, it's described that he kind of goes grey and he looks pretty old, and you know, like it, it like it's taken a toll on him. Paul is like, you know, this is obviously you know bringing a mouse back to life, curing the urinary tract infection. These are just kind of small things, but this is kind of like the biggest kind of miracle he's performed, and obviously it's taken a toll on him. Um, and this, I mean. You know, this possibly suggests that he's done this before, but never to this kind of extent. Um, and obviously, now we have a completely restored um, Patricia Clarkson, mm. who, oh, yes. would, who would guest in a few episodes of Six Feet Under at the same time that uh, James Cromwell was on Six Feet Under. Right. Yeah. Um, with the opening theme by Thomas Newman. So bringing all them together. Um, I think it's, and a, of it's course, the climax of the, the great run this movie has of. Notable actors who have also appeared in other Stephen King properties, because he goes on to play the TV version of Carrie's mum, like in a couple of years' time, and then obviously you got like Jeffrey Demun has been in uh, he's a, a couple of he's Shawshank, all that kind of stuff, you know, Gary Sinise, The Stand, you know, they got the, um, even David Morse was in The Langoliers and stuff like that. It's like, going throughout the movies, it's like, oh, that guy was another Stephen King thing, and that guy, mm-hmm. and that guy, <laughs> and that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jeffrey Jeffrey Demun is like friends with Frank Darabont. That's why he's been in lots of the Frank Darabont stuff. Yeah, that's why. He... Even like you know, you got William Sadler obviously going to be in. He's other Frank Darabont don't spoil, guy. Don't 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 spoil William Sadler yet. We haven't got to William Sadler yet. Um, <laughs> don't spoil that. Um, but even again, Harry Dean Stanton also in Christine. It's just like, oh my god! It's like, I think it might just be a thing in Hollywood. Like you can't not be in a Stephen King thing at some point. I think if you're around for over twenty years, <laughs> it's just going to happen by default at some point. To be in the SKCU. Well, he's written a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's written a lot of books and a lot of them have been adapted so it's mm. going to happen um, but yeah I should say of course Patricia Clarkson at this particular point um, insanely beautiful just like I mean way out of James Cromwell's league I don't know what they were doing together as a couple I should say that about Bonnie Hunt as well Bonnie Hunt way out of Tom Hanks's <laughs> league Tom Hanks every single film batting way above his average Meg Ryan out of his league in all three films they're in just constantly out of his league um, you know, so, but yeah, no, she is insane. Like it's ins- like when she's fully cured, she is insanely beautiful. And I'm just like, you know, obviously he got lucky. Uh, she is like 20 years younger than him as well. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's meant to be true on screen. They have that sort of odd moment where, yeah, she talks about seeing him in a dream and stuff. And then like there were yeah. two wanderers who found, found each other and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's getting into real, into the, the woods with this mystic stuff. Then you're like, okay. It's very intimate <laughs> a, though. But a bit much. The, their connection. Uh, I mean, oh, yeah. I was wondering what was going through the warden's mind because he doesn't he's not even explained to as coffee makes his way into the house. Like maybe <laughs> just a couple of like, it's going to be OK. It's going to be OK to, from like Tom Hanks. But he like goes up to his wife's bedroom, uh, talks to his wife for a second and then leans over for basically a kiss, <laughs> which causes yeah, the house yeah. to shake. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I just wonder what's going through his head. I mean, <laughs> I think I think of course he is he's completely uh, fine because Tom Hanks is the one who says it's going to be fine. He's like, yeah. and you trust Tom Hanks. You gotta so, trust Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, I can understand why he doesn't. Yeah, well, say too, they, they always do this. Um, I'm not just sure the entire rationale behind it, but like, there's always like a slight comparison in that they make a point of whenever there's an execution, the lights in the the prison go a little brighter, and every time John Coffey. Yeah 
resuscitates someone. The yeah. lights also burn brighter as well. They're obviously make, trying to make some sort of comparison there. It's just maybe it's just like, well, one's taking away life, one's giving life back, and hey, it's got the same effect or whatever. But I'm not entirely sure what the point of that is. But just to, to say that it is there, and it's it's been noted. It's in the record. It's it's because he's Jesus Christ returned. That's why, <laughs> you know. And obviously, first time round, Jesus wasn't near any electricity, but now he's around a lot of electricity. So. Yeah. I'll also say, too, there actually is in the book as well. At some point, there, Paul does have a, a very on-the-nose dream about seeing John Coffey getting crucified. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, at, the, at one point, I think Percy's on another cross, and Del, who's, you know, Delacroix, was his, you know, the cross in French. Yeah. Is uh, is beside? They're supposed to be Not the good so. thief and the bad thief and stuff. And it's like I think that's Stephen King. Like, okay, man, just you know, tap the brakes a little bit there. Okay, this you can make it yeah. a little more subtle than that. I mean, I should say also in the novel, um, he gives the deaths of I. Th- I can't remember if it's um, if it's Melinda or if it's his wife that died like in a car crash. I think it might be Melinda who dies in a car crash like five years later or something. Mm. Um, you know, so it's like she got cured, but then she died. Um, <laughs> You know, so uh, uh, what was the point, I guess? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a great scene. Michael Cogdon is just amazing in it. And obviously the fact that he keeps coughing as they kind of get him back, they make a remark that obviously if, if, it's, like if he dies or something, they're not going to be able to lift him up. So, right. um, you know, they're kind of, you know, they've got to get him back. She gave him this uh, medallion of St. Christopher, um, you know, who uh, is the patron saint of travelers. Um, so I guess she sees him as a traveler or something. I don't know. Um uh, but yeah, uh, they they this when they get back into the prison. Uh, this was my favorite when I got the, when I got like the I think this is in the final novel. Um, once they once they get back, um, uh, this is my favorite stuff. Where basically, um, John Coffey is still kind of coughing a little bit, and so he uh, kind of attacks Percy, who has been let out of the restraints, and he takes the evil that was in Melinda and puts it into Percy who then kind of is just glazed over and seems to be kind of like out of it. Um, And then, of course, this is where Percy walks up to uh, Bill's cell. Uh, Obviously, they've had some beef previous to this. And Bill is kind of just like, what are you looking at? And then he just pulls his gun out and unloads all six shots into him. And he just kills him. Um, And, you know, it's kind of of weird because it's like a justice for like both of them. And obviously, you know, uh, as as he, once he's finished doing that, Percy kind of spits out the the flies that obviously uh, John has just put in him, and then he kind of goes a bit catatonic, uh, mm. not knowing what he's just done. And love- this is where John Coffey says, "I punished them bad men." Um, mm. I always thought this was kind of a it's a it's a it's an odd one in that like it seems almost out of character for John Coffey to hold hold within hold that within him so like it's a preconceived thing of like i'm going to do this in order to punish these two guys and then it's also the what you know the spoilers for what happens at the end of the movie but of course what actually even happened previous in the movie where they had people going and sitting and watching an execution and they were there kind of like you know later on we'll get like oh you know kill him twice you know once for each of my girls and stuff like that and it's kind of like, oh, yeah, isn't it terrible that these people are watching, there to watch someone receive justice, like, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, we as an audience also feel immense satisfaction of seeing this happen to Percy 
and Wild Bill. So it feels like it's making a commentary towards you of like, you enjoyed seeing that, did you? Well, look how horrible it is when it's in you know, different circumstances, as if it's trying to make you feel guilty after the fact for enjoying seeing Percy and Wild Bill get their comeuppance. Yeah. I mean, obviously this is where... I, mean, I In the novel, it's a it's kind of spaced out a bit more in terms of what happened with the, the you know, with the two uh, Detroit girls and how they were murdered. And, you know, we get it kind of here just as like a vision. And I like what I like is how Brutus is like, don't go near John Coffee. But like Paul obviously still trusts John Coffee. You know, he doesn't he doesn't see violence in him. And technically speaking, uh, much like Jigsaw, uh, John Coffee did not kill Bill. (laughs) You know, he, he merely put him in a trap where somebody else would shoot him six times, uh, instantly killing him. And obviously we're justified for that because, I mean, that is a kind of capital punishment. Um, and, you know, John obviously shows him, you know, that it was Wild Bill that killed uh, the two girls and that he kind of... I mean, I just love the way he says, you know, he... he you, like, when obviously he kind of um, told them that, like, if they if they screamed, then he would kill the other one. And he says that he used, you know, he used their love against them. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking when he's kind of recounting this, you know, like, obviously this is something that has also haunted John Coffey. Like, you know, the, I guess the, the reason why I don't mind him using Percy as a weapon to kill World Bill is because, you know, he, this is this has been on his mind, you know, like he tried to save those girls. You know, he'd said obviously a few times I tried to take it back. And, you know, throughout the novel, Paul kind of deduces that what he meant was trying to bring the two girls back to life after mm-hmm. Bill had killed them. And that's why he's obviously found yeah. them uh, also, in his arms. Because what, what, what do you guys, you know, both your interpretations, You is this movie... Pro or against capital punishment? Because you think for the most part, it would seem like, oh, yeah, it totally is. But yet, again, they are now showing you a justified murder because, like, well, the Wild Bill, he killed those kids. So now you get the catharsis of seeing him getting his just desserts. Whereas, you know, the rest of the movie would be like, no, this this system is horrible and you shouldn't be doing this to people. Yeah, again, they're not – they don't seem to be dwelling on the crimes of the actual people behind the bars – uh, they seem to be dwelling more on how evil Percy is, um, and uh, I, you know, I, and, and then we find out how evil Bill is. It it is kind of convenient that it works out this way, though. It is because when they let Percy loose, he's he's like, yeah, yeah, we're, I, I, I'll go along with it, you know, because they threaten him again. But you're still kind of worried. Mm. He might talk some. I think even Brutal was saying, like, he's he's going to talk eventually. And then all of a sudden all this happens. Like, well, no, he's not going to talk at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, obviously, you know, we'll we'll find out uh, after, the, after the next execution that obviously Paul basically stopped and didn't, you know, and was kind of, his mind was turned around. But throughout the film, Paul has never expressed a view as to whether or not capital punishment is good or bad. Because it's just his job, and they're in the middle of a depression, and a job's a job. You know that's why he's more afraid of Percy is because he's going to lose his job. Mm. You know, not because he is going to lose the pleasure of murdering people on the state's dime. Like that's not his his motivation. It's just it's a job, and he's been doing it for years, and he's used to it. And you know, so and yeah, in this one moment, Stephen King is like, well, you know, pro shooting a guy who killed two two girls and i don't think he's he's expecting anyone to be on the other side of like you know bill's death being a bad thing he's expecting people to be like yeah that guy deserved to die because of what he did you know he raped and murdered two um you know preteen yeah. girls 
But at the same time, within the book, that's also what Del did. So it's kind of like, well, <laughs> yeah. you were obviously devastated when that happened in, in the book. So, uh, yeah. particularly in the film. But uh, yeah, so I just always think it was a bit of a kind of weird, like, yeah, you know, it's like they're having their cake and eating it too in this scenario. I was like, well, it's the, it's the only quibble I would have with the movie. It's like, what are you trying to say here exactly? Uh, well, I mean, I think that because obviously, you know, at that point, then Percy is, you know, he does get a transfer to Briar Ridge, uh, wink, wink, but not the one he was expected. Um, as we see him kind of uh, what's funny is I, I like I feel like there is a kind of implication that maybe there is going to be a Percy Whitmore at that facility that will basically dole out the same punishment to Percy that Percy was trying to dole out on the Green Mile. Like there's an implication that maybe there's somebody there who's going to take care of Percy, um, you know, and be the bully. Uh, because in Stephen King's world, there's always a bully somewhere. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so it's it's basically double justice, you know. Like, he kills Bill, but then he gets committed. And also, I'm sure at some point, somebody in, in that facility is going to end up abusing him and taking advantage of him. And, you know, uh, he's not going to have a happy life. I think in the novel, they say he died, like, I don't know, 20 years later or something. And it was like a freak thing. And... Um, yeah, in the novel they go into a lot of detail about how each character died because he tells you how brutal died, he tells you how Dean Standen died, he tells you how he died. <laughs> you know, he kills off he kills off his own wife in like a you know she dies of like cancer or something a few years later. Like the it's just constant death at one point in the in the final part of the novel. Um, it isn't so much here because well I mean I guess it is constant death for the next like thirty minutes. But um, you know obviously knowing that John Coffey is innocent, Paul is like. I, I will break you out of here. Like, I will, you know, if you want, I will set you free. And, you know, it doesn't matter what the consequences are. It's like, you know, he does, he just doesn't want to execute John Coffey. Um, and John Coffey is like, uh, I just want to watch the film Top Hat. <laughs> and so he's like, okay. <laughs> I'll a, arrange it's that. It's a Darabont edition, too, because like from the, the, the guy who yeah. made The Majestic obviously got a real you know, affinity for old Hollywood. So he has to throw in like, well, one of the things that makes life magical is like properly old cinema <laughs> and stuff. So, and the thing is too, it's one of the amount of things that they add in into the movie um, that actually improve the material. I think the Top Hat edition is one of them too. It's like, it becomes instantly iconic once you watch it. Yeah. The, the shot of, you know, John Coffey with the, the halo behind his head and stuff right. and uh, it's yeah it's, it's a real you know Darabont really knew he knew exactly what he was doing with this material and uh, yeah really elevated quite a lot of it in, in my opinion and the song you know I'm in heaven you know that kind of goes along with it too mm. well yeah yeah <laughs> it's just it adds in an, an extra little twist of the knife too when you know Coffey is getting uh, strapped in where he's actually you know he's singing the song yeah, he's singing the lyrics. Like, oh my god you just made this horribly sad scene <laughs> even sadder well i mean it's funny as well because frank darabont loves a shot of people watching old-timey films uh staring up at a flickering screen mm-hmm. um you know so he obviously likes to put that in uh in films i'm missing from the mist i think though unfortunately um mm-hmm. so yes uh you know, the execution of John Coffey has come and he's going to meet death. And by that, I mean, William Sadler is there. Um, hey. which, death you know, himself. He just stands up and goes like, you might be a king or a little street sweeper, but sooner or later you dance with the reaper. Spins the scythe yes. around his head. Along with uh, Paula Malcolmson uh, playing, uh, playing his wife, um, who, uh, you know, I think most people these days would know her from 
Uh, well, she was in she was in the Hunger Games as Mrs. Everdeen. Again, this is what happens to actors. Eventually, you end up in a bunch of YA adaptations, and that's where people will know you from. Um, <laughs> but of course, she was also the wife on Ray Donovan, uh, where she died of cancer in like season four or something. <laughs> so, um, Deadwood, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Deadwood, Caprica. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of other yeah. stuff, but yeah, I mean, this is kind of like one of her earliest roles, um, and she is from Northern Ireland, mm. and she doesn't speak at all in this film. Um, but obviously, <laughs> uh, William Sadler is is angry, and he's yelling about you know you know kill him twice, um, you know for obviously his his kids, and you know they go through the procedure. Obviously, as viewers now, we know this procedure by heart, and we at each step start to cry harder and harder <laughs> as mm. they realize that they are, you know, because, you know, there was a moment of hope where Paul was like, I'll get you out of here, you know, and John Coffey turned it down and he's like, no. And of course he then said, you know, how would, how would I explain myself when I'm before God that I killed one of his miracles? Yeah. Um, that's, that's one of the things that, cause this movie does have a very, um, I don't know what I call it an odd tone, but it does have like, there's a sense of whimsy about it. I don't know if it's the Thomas, Thomas Newman score or, there's all the stuff with Mr. Jingles and whatnot, but like once it gets to the end, it does get like in other hands, this could have been relentlessly bleak because the fact that you know Paul is offering coffee like you know, the road to freedom, and he's like, no, it would be you're doing me a mercy to get me out, get me off this planet. <laughs> like yeah. I, yeah. it's so horrible here. I just need to go. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. <laughs> and the then particularly what happens at the end, the the final refrains are like. Yeah, man, if this was like an A24 movie nowadays, this would be like the most depressing thing. <laughs> it already is quite depressing. But I feel like a it could be a real, real freaking kick in the nuts of, the, of a whole new level in different hands. A, A24? Yeah. I'm, A24? Oh, okay. A24. That <laughs> just completely shocked me. I was like, A24? Who's calling it that? <laughs> well, I, I thought um, it's a new film company I've set up. It's all to do with paper. I thought you'd uh, mentioned the... Uh, <laughs> projected onto a... I thought you mentioned the sequel, The Green Knight, when you brought that up, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, they. I mean, you know, they. we go through the procedure, we see the light bulbs explode, we see Tom Hanks, like, tr- holding back tears. Mm-hmm. When they cut to Barry Pepper, and he's just, like, bawling his eyes out. That is me during this scene, because yeah. I'm like, I, you know... John Coffey has been so beautiful in this film. And yeah. obviously, you know, the extra tragedy watching it years later when you know that Michael Clark Duncan, you know, he died yeah. in like, um, oh, my God, it's almost exactly the anniversary as we record this. Uh, he died in 2012, uh, September 3rd, um, only 54. And it's just like, you know, uh, it's it, like it's just a tragedy that will last him, you know, kind of so mm. young because, you know, one of those things actually actor. looked up in between like the, the, the winner of Best Supporting Actor of the Oscars that year was Michael Caine in the Cider House Rules. And I was like, if you consider iconic performances, do you think of Michael Caine in Cider House Rules? Like or do you think Oscar. of, you know, John Coffey? <laughs> it wasn't actual. Yeah. It's one of those things, though. It's like, you know, ordinary people winning over Raging Bulls. It's like the Oscars don't know a goddamn yeah. thing half the time. I so. mean, he, he already had an Oscar. Why did he need another Oscar? He didn't need another Oscar. We should have given it to Michael Clark Duncan. Or, yeah. uh, at the very least, Tom Hanks. Somebody from this film should have won an Oscar. Um, but yeah, so obviously, you know, after his death, Paul puts the necklace back on because if you can't electrocute people with metal things on them, because they'll just end up setting on fire or whatever. So, um, and then we come back to the present and, you know, Paul then proceeds to kill everybody off. Um, you know, he kind of, he takes Elaine to go and see Mr. Jingles, who is still alive. 
Um, in the novel, Mr. Jingles dies, which gives us the idea that even though Joan Coffey gave him extended life, because, you know, most mice only live about two years. <laughs> so here he is, like, 60, 70 years later. So, you know, that would get, that would indicate to us that maybe Paul is going to live to, like, 700. Yeah, so yeah. Um, in the novel, he dies, which, you know, gives Paul the relief that maybe he'll die uh, eventually. But at the moment, he reveals that he's 108. And he's watched everybody die. He watched his wife die. He watched all his guards die. He watched the warden die. You know, it's literally everybody. He's like a prisoner to life, watching the people around him slowly get taken to be killed. And he's, he's, he's there's nothing. He just has to wait for maybe someday it'll eventually <laughs> come for him as well. Yeah, so he should go back and find William Sadler. Maybe that sort of things out. But yeah, so he, you know, <laughs> and what's funny is in this film that like he's like Elaine. Eventually, you will die. Cut to Elaine in a in, yep. a, in, a, in a coffin. Like she's dead. Um, yeah, it, which is like I don't think I don't think it happens that way in the novel. It's a bit more. There's a bit more kind of like outro, but it, like literally the film feels like it's like yeah, okay, we're like three hours, like ten or whatever. Yeah. We've got to get out there's, of here there's, now. There's a sequence too where yeah, he talks about his wife dying and she like it was a, a bus crash. And he's yeah. like, he's crawling out for John Coffey to come, and he sees he sees John Coffey's ghost. And it's like, oh, I killed the one man who might have been able to help me in the scenario. And it's a bit like, yeah, you can cut that though. Like, it's already the ending's already a, yeah. a, a gut punch. You don't need to like that. Would be you know, adding sadness upon sadness is something that Frank Darabont will do later on with the mist, where <laughs> the ending is just like, you know what? Let's just make it even worse. <laughs> That's a rough one. Yeah, and of course he's. He he says he says to her, you know, like, and the you know in the voiceover, the general audience, he says that he feels that you know his long life is punishment for killing John. You know, whatever, whatever happened when he did the shining on him, um, and gave him the vision of that of that murder. You know, that's the thing that has given him long life. You know, and obviously he brought Mister Jingles back from the dead, and Mister Jingles hasn't died yet. Um, we get a quick flashback where we see him, you know, Mr. Jingles is on the mile, obviously in the kerfuffle of Dell's death and, you know, John Coffey's death and everything. You know, he's he's kind of obviously been lost a little bit and, you know, we see him collect him and obviously that's how he's managed to keep hold of him for 70 something years. Um, and, you know, we don't see Mr. Jingles die, but we do see Mr. Jingles breathing in his box. And, you know, this is it. This is his punishment. You know, he's going to have to watch everyone around him die. Um uh, although he does say that he had, you know, considered taking his own life, but you know he's not going to do that. He's just going to wait, um, you know, and that's where the film ends uh, with Mister Jingles breathing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it obviously uh, it just uh, you know an amazing film and a great performance from Tom Hanks. Wonderful performance from pretty much everybody in this film, um, unfortunately, including Doug Hutchinson. <laughs> yeah, um, you know. You know, if if William Sadler was going to take someone, why did he take Michael Clark Duncan and not Doug Hutchinson? Is the question. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, just uh, you know, obviously I've termed this the Golden Fourteen because you know these are fourteen pretty good films that Tom Hanks managed to do in a row, um, and like this is easily. I mean, I would say this is probably one of my favorites. Obviously, I enjoy Toy Story and Toy Story Two. They both got one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, um, but of all the stuff that he does live action, this is probably at least in in the top two out of everything, you know, from between uh, A League of Their Own until Catch Me If You Can. Um, you know, it's just a, an amazing film. Um, and just, like, everything about it is so well done. And in particular, like, the adaptation. He, you know, he takes a book that was... I mean, there's a bit of filler in there, just because I think of the way it was being written. And, and, and some of the stuff that Stephen King was just like, 
you know, I'll mention this, but I might not do anything with it later on. Um, and then some of the other stuff where it's like out of nowhere, all of a sudden this thing happens, you know, like this, this kind of stuff where I think Stephen King had an idea of what he was going to write. Um, so, you know, Frank Darabont was able to kind of go in and take out all the bits and pieces, the extras, the stuff like Brad Dolan that isn't really needed. You know, we get the theme. There's a bully in this prison in 1935. We don't need to have that expanded by also having an orderly be just as bad, mm. um, you know. Um, but I should say as well, they considered putting Tom Hanks in old man makeup for the opening and closing scenes. And they did some tests and it looked terrible. And so they went ahead with just casting somebody else to play him. <laughs> um, Yet he still did Cloud Atlas. <laughs> the thing is as well, in, in A League of Their Own, when you have the old ladies, the two, the two sisters um, in the present day are played by old women, but they're voiced by Gina Davis and Laurie oh, Petty. Wow. And they didn't do that here. And I think that would have been fun if they'd have just been able to have like Tom Hanks doing the voice of the old guy. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe there's too much speaking for it to be possible because in A League of Their Own, there's very little dialogue. But um, mm. also the actress who plays the old Gina Davis looks exactly like like an older Gina Davis. It's kind <laughs> of uncanny. And so her voice in her mouth kind of works. But this guy doesn't really look that much like Tom Hanks. Um you know, so but yeah, I mean the guy who does the, the the older performance, I think he's you know he's pretty good. He's only in like the beginning and the end, um, but you know, uh, Dabs Greer. I mean that's a great name. Come on, um, <laughs> you can't go wrong with that. Died in two thousand seven. R.I.P. Dabs Greer. You know, a, gra- a great kind of memorable performance in this film. Um, you know, uh, just kind of. Uh, Although that, the mouse final, that plays he's... Mr. Jingles is still alive somehow. So he's... What? <laughs> yeah, Paul got out first somehow. <laughs> Uh, this was actually his final performance um, as the older version of Paul Edgecombe. Uh But yeah, you know, I thought I think he did a good job of kind of conveying the weariness and the you know yeah. the, the, the hundred and eight years of it. <laughs> I did see that um, apparently uh, another people considered for playing Paul John Travolta, which is like it is one of those ones of like it's a Tom Hanks role. I don't know if anyone else <laughs> could play it with the same level of like he can do commanding, you know, businessman guy who's all business trying to make sure everything runs and is very strict with people but also cuddly and very lovable you know at the same time it's it's such a it's a fine line to walk and it's just that's that line is where tom hanks lives a lot of the time so i find uh very difficult to imagine anyone else playing the part the kind of the seed of this came about because um after shawshank came out um frank darabont met stephen king at like the oscars and he was talking about how you know the like like he he enjoyed that film obviously you know um but also they were kind of talking about like you know if there was like another film that they were going to do and he was like oh you know i think tom hanks would be a really good you know like uh lead in this like he had like an idea for something and it wasn't they ended up not doing that film but obviously then when green mile came around um you know when as i said when the when the novel was being written apparently tom hanks was the person that he had in mind as paul edgecombe you know in the 30s anyway so uh you know I I, even though they kind of, as they do with all films, you know, obviously there were other people that they were going to try. You know, I think in Darabont's mind, it was like Tom Hanks or nobody. Mm. Um, you know, I and I think also we're all glad. Too, that the mm. potential casting for John Coffey was Ving Rhames, which is like, okay, okay mm. maybe. And then uh, Shaquille O'Neal, which is like, I get physicality, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I don't think I don't think that would have worked no. quite as well. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, you know, there have been actors in the past who have been seen in one particular way and then they have been able to pull off a dramatic role. And and then you're like, oh, you know, 
you, you, you kind of understand like how beforehand it wouldn't have worked and then it, you know they just do it and it does mm. um you know thinking maybe of i don't know michael keaton playing batman um yeah. <laughs> but it, that, know, we could it, be celebrating like the the 22nd year of the shackasance you know <laughs> <laughs> well well in that case uh shaquille o'neal would have been a terrible choice and it would have completely ruined the film so, <laughs> so um you know unless unless they cgi'd someone else's head onto his body who could actually act uh, and in that case, you may as well just have got that person. Um, but yeah, like I said, they did a load of tricks to make Michael Michael Clark Duncan look bigger anyway. So, you know, that, the physicality wasn't necessary. What they needed was the performance, and that's what they got. Um, so we shall go to ratings, and obviously we have only two ratings on this podcast. They are T-Hags or no T-Hags. Um, <laughs> so we will start with Robin, uh, your verdict. Uh, have you gotten a no T-Hags yet? Or, or uh... Oh, yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say yeah. uh, I definitely signed up because I love this movie and uh, definitely a T. <laughs> Hanks. T. Hanks for uh, making me watch it again, actually. I really enjoyed sitting down for the good three hours. Oh. And <laughs> Yeah. Love you can say that too for three hours it's it's one of those blessed movies of like massive running time you don't feel what? it at no, all no, no. like it really does it flows no. right past I didn't feel it because I watched it at 1.7 speed um, <laughs> <laughs> because I because I didn't have three hours to spare to watch it so <laughs> so uh, I stuck it on quick um, but it still worked you know um, and now your verdict Oh, I hate this movie. Oh, my God. Let me let me tell you now all of the beefs I have with the Green Miles. No, no, this is very much a, a resounding T-Hanks. Like, this is a... It's it's one of those ones that is such a celebrated movie anyway. I think you kind of alluded to, like, way at the beginning, Darren. Like, the fact that its uh, critical rating is, like, only at, like, 78% Rotten Tomatoes is like, what? Like, how the hell did that happen? But it, it's one of those ones, like... You know, even with the passage of time, you're going to be like, oh, maybe it's, you know, rose-tinted goggles looking at this thing, and maybe it's not as good as you remember, and then you watch it, and it's like, no, it is. It's 100% as good as you remember. It's a, yeah, fantastic bit of filmmaking. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Darabont gets back to some other King stuff as well, hopefully with Tom Hanks in tow, because he did, maybe. of course, you know, obviously Shawshank, then, you know, this, and then The Mist, which obviously goes out in a very much more, it's a constantly the uh, decline of hope in Darabont's uh, King uh, trilogy there. So I'm hoping maybe I'll come back to a more of a uh, an upbeat one <laughs> or something that ends on a more upbeat note uh, to, to finish, off, finish off a quadrology of uh, films somehow. Uh, the correct term is tetralogy. Uh, quadrology is a is a term invented by uh, 20th Century Fox to sell the four alien films. Um, <laughs> I would be so. outraged there if that was, I wasn't picturing the box set as I said it. So. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it worked because people constantly use that phrase. Uh, yeah, this is not the lowest rated in terms of like the Rotten Tomato stuff uh, because you've got Mail only got seventy percent and Sleepless in Seattle only got seventy five. Um, so critics didn't like Meg Ryan during the nineties. That doesn't make any sense. She was America's sweetheart. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, the next few Castaway eighty nine, Road to Petition eighty one, and of course Catch Me If You Can ninety six. I mean, you know, uh, and then he. Then he does Lady Killers, and that gets fifty four. So mm. things steeply. For, I mean, when when the rating for your next film is half the previous one on Rotten Tomatoes, you're not in a good place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, noticeably better than the sixteen that uh, Bonfire of the Vontes got though. So uh, you know, things were only only on the up after that. Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, obviously a T hangs for me. You know, I saw it at the cinema, loved it. I've watched it a few times since. 
Um, but I always find it extremely emotionally draining because I don't particularly want to pick, watch a bunch of people being put to death by a literal <laughs> chair. And I certainly don't want to watch Michael Clark Duncan, particularly after he has died in real life, also being put to death. Um, you know, as much as he enjoys watching Top Hat for like you know, 30 seconds, uh, having him reciting I'm in heaven as he's being, you know, killed is just, Ugh. you know, it's a hard thing to sit yeah. through. Um, you know, but yeah, th- I mean, I think that's kind of what makes, you know, obviously they say, you know, death is what makes life precious. And, you know, I think this film kind of, um, you know, also, I guess if a guy with the initials JC touches you in the crotch, then you can live forever. So, you know, <laughs> I mean... Feels like a promise, doesn't it? Um, so before we go, uh, let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, Robin? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a host of uh, Karate Kid Minute, uh, a three times a week, uh, minute by minute podcast all about uh, the Karate Kid franchise. Uh, we're talking uh, Karate Kid 2 presently and um, and also we'll be uh, talking about the uh, series Cobra Kai. Great stuff. I, I saw uh, Karate Kid when I was young. Then I saw Karate Kid 3 at the cinema with my two brothers and my dad. I've never seen Karate Kid 2. Oh, well, you skipped a really good one. (laughs) And went right to the... (laughs) Well. Yeah, I mean, I like Karate Kid 3 because it's got Robin Lively and she's also in Twin Peaks. Well, yeah, there there is that. That's a selling point for me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm hoping you are going to do a hiatus project about Teen Witch or something as well. (laughs) Robin's just like, well, you know, we're in the Robin Lively world. It would be a good bonus episode for sure. I have never seen it. Oh, wow. Oh, you, you've got to treat yourself yeah. to it. It is, <laughs> it is something. <laughs> uh, and uh, Niall, do you have anything that you wish to plug? Oh, yeah. Uh, I am one of the hosts of Batminute, which, uh, like Robin's uh, Karate Kid Minute, is also a three times a week show uh, looking at the Batman films, uh, you know, one minute at a time. Uh, we've covered the first three. Well, well, actually, from 1989 onwards, I should say. We've not done the 60s movie yet. Uh, but, yeah, we're currently uh, waist deep in Batman and Robin. And uh, yeah, it's been it's it's been an eye-opening experience going through it minute by minute. So um, if you want to, if that makes you curious, then uh, hop on over. Both both other guys on this podcast have featured in previous seasons and in future seasons. You know, fingers crossed. I hope. Uh, so yeah, if you like the company here, you'll hear everybody again. <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter at the extremely awkward t underscore ft memory. Uh, thanks to both of you for being my guest here today. Thank you. Oh, thanks Thanks very much for, for having me. And now, uh, fellas, obviously this was a bit of a long walk, uh, not least because of the three-hour running time. Um, so I think next time I'm going to get Cast Away. <laughs>